Welcome. Say hello. hello. I just love the way she talks. She's got that Australian accent. I just like to hear that. <laughs> anyway, um, I want to congratulate this class because this class has raised $50,000 for the Good News Tour. So you guys have done a phenomenal job. The, the pastoral staff at, at the university was quite uh, blown away that this class raised $50,000. met with the pastor this week, and uh, he actually pushed himself back and sat back in his chair as, uh, as he realized how much you guys have, have contributed for this. So, and he realized that it's not just financial interest, that that financial interest shows that there's real interest for this message. And so he's very enthusiastic about us doing this program here. So we're looking forward to that. All right, let's begin our class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have privileged us with the opportunity to know you. And as we've come to know you, you privilege us with the opportunity to share what we've learned of you with others. And we pray that your spirit will dwell with us this morning, that we can have the, the curtains pulled back, that we can see more clearly your true character, your methods, your, your principles in, in your universe, and that you will enable us to go forward uh, from this class uh, through these weeks and uh, coming at the Good News Tour, that, that we will be effective representatives for you, that this message can go forward to reach the world so that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly discipleship, and the lesson title this week is More Lessons in Discipleship. And let's start with Sunday's lesson, and somebody read for us Mark chapter 4, verses 36 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 36 through 41. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why were you afraid? Do you, have still no, do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey and then somebody read for us the, the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson, which begins, Notice the element. Notice the element of fear in the disciples all through the account. They feared the storm, and then, after the storm was calm, they seemed to fear Jesus. The manifestation of such power was impressive, of course, but one would have thought by now that after their time with Christ, they would have known that they had nothing to fear from Him. On the contrary... This power should have been a source of great hope and comfort to them, because by now they should have known the character of the one who possessed all that power. This account shows that these men still had a lot to learn about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So thoughts about the account, and then thoughts about the paragraph, because the paragraph is expounding right on that account. Did you notice how afraid the disciples were? Did you notice that it said they were afraid of the storm? They were terrified. They were, but then they, when Jesus calmed the storm, it says they, they were terrified at Jesus. What are your thoughts about that? It doesn't yeah. make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to you. Okay, yeah, come on over here. Well, it actually it, it could be a misrepresentation of the, of the word um, afraid because it could be the fear of God. In you mean they were in awe and admiration? Okay, that's a possibility. Do you think that? Do you think that that's what was going on? Awe and admiration. They were just so inspired and in awe of him. Do you think they were actually frightened? I mean, what human being? As they knew him, they were. I don't think they were fully convinced in their hearts all the way that he was the Son of God. 
had the power to control nature. So the lessons suggest there's some keys to, to, to the fear or not being afraid in the situation. The lessons suggest the key that, that could have prevented their fear as what? Knowing him. Knowing him. Knowing who he really was. Knowing his character. Do you think if they would have actually truly fully known him as he was, they would have been afraid after he calmed the storms? No. They wouldn't have been afraid before that. They wouldn't have been, ooh, interesting, yes, yes, they wouldn't have been afraid before that. In fact, um, some people I've heard say that it doesn't matter what you know, that you, what you know has no bearings on what you feel. I've heard that said. Is that true? No. Or in fact, where, where does this whole fear thing come from? Distrust. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. In the New Testament, it says perfect love casts out. In fact, right before that, it says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Do we see that the fear is part of the infection of sin? That somehow when mankind fell into sin, they started to experience fear. And God's healing solution has, has part of that process is removing fear from our hearts. We look at the people ready to meet Christ when they come in Revelation 12. It's described as these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not afraid. Somehow fear is taken away when love comes in. So I think that, that knowing, uh, knowing God is life eternal, John 17, 3. So somehow coming into that unity, that knowledge of God, does do something to the way we feel. Our fears are changed and taken away, aren't they? Yeah. I think it depends on what you're afraid of. Does it? Because if you're in a car and you're about to have a head-on collision, you're going to be afraid. Well, I remember the story of Ellen White in a ship. And the ship was uh, in a terrible, terrible storm, she tells about. And she says, every, and they all thought they were going to go down. And everyone was terrified. And they were all praying to God that God saved them. Do you remember the story? But she wasn't afraid. Do you remember she talked about it? She had peace. Remember the martyrs, the story of the Book of Martyrs, how in ancient Rome they were being put to the stake, burned, lions coming out to eat them, and they were singing hymns. And it freaked out the pagan Rome so bad, pagan Romans so bad, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't comprehend that these people apparently didn't have fear. How about Stephen when he's being stoned? Did, is there any evidence that Stephen was, was terrified in fear when he was being stoned? No, so, some, somehow all these people had love so much in their hearts that they were no longer afraid. Stanley. So are you suggesting then that the lack of fear can be a marker for us to judge our relationship with Christ uh, and our preparation? If that's the marker, my guess is most of us won't, won't reach it. <laughs> we have fear and doubt, you know, all of those things. So at what point can we say, you can't have fear beyond this point because you are safe in Christ and that's a marker? Yeah, I actually think that there is a relationship between love and fear, inversely. The more love comes in, the less fear we have. The more fear we have, the more self-focused we are. Think about relationship with a child, all of you who are parents, and your child is in a dangerous situation and you have an opportunity to put yourself in their place to save your child. Do you do it? Is your primary concern about what happens to you? Are you afraid about what happens to you? Or does your love for your child overrule that fear? 
find that singing is an act of faith in the midst of fear. I have sung while afraid. And so I'm thinking that an act of seeing a lion coming would instill a few songs in me. <laughs> I think that uh, you know, faith is not the absence of fear, but faith is a decisive act in the midst of fear, in the environment of fear. No, I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we won't experience fear. I am suggesting, however, though, that the fear is reduced and reduced and reduced as, as we come closer and closer and closer to Christ, to the point that the fear really becomes um, a secondary issue in our experience rather than a primary issue. Yeah, and so uh, and there will come a day, I really do believe, perfect love casts out all fear. There will come a day where we won't have fear. Now, that day might be the day we see him in the clouds. I'm not sure exactly when that day is going to be. But there's going to be a day, day where we walk free from fear. Is that not true? Does anybody believe that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, it's, it's not so, I mean, I've always thought of it not so much the fear of the death, but the fear of how they die. In other words, I don't fear death at all, but I sure want to go quick. I don't want to have to say I have no fear of that. Okay. Yes. It's like the little boy on the airplane who was not afraid. He said, because my dad is the, the pilot. No, see, there's, that's that perspective thing we talked about last week. Seeing things from a, from a heavenly perspective also will bear in. If you were on that ship, and you already knew on that ship that you were going to be safe on the other side, does that reduce your fear? Yeah, it's the unknown and the not knowing often that, that increases our fear. Yes, Russell. Knowing the wrong thing. Or knowing the wrong thing. There you go. Getting back to this uh, story of the disciples in the boat, is this not yet another example of why God cannot um, win us back to trust with a display of power? That was excellent point. Excellent point, because the talk about the power, and we're going to ask that next question, is, is power and the display of power or miracles a very good barometer upon which to base your faith, your trust, your confidence? How many think that Satan could have walked on water? Or can walk on water? Right? If you see a being walking on water, does that automatically mean that being is from God? No. How many think that Satan can control the weather? Yes. Yeah, some Bible examples. Job, exactly. Chapter 1 of Job, we all know it's very clearly stated for us that, that God had a hedge of protection around Job. God pulled back his hedge of protection and put Job, Job and his family in Satan's hands. And then... Fire fell, killed some people, and then a great wind came. A great wind came and, and blew over the, the building that his kids were in and killed all ten of his kids, remember? And the servants blamed it on God. And the servants, oh, the fire of God fell. The fire of God fell. Was it God's fire that did all that? Was God the one? Now, why this is important, who do you think brought that storm on the disciples out in the sea with Christ in the boat? You think that might have been Satan, just like he did in the book of Job, whipping up a storm to try and quash this new church before it gets started, prevent Christ from completing his ministry? I think very likely. I don't think it was God the Father bringing that storm, do you? You don't think it was Jesus or the Holy Spirit bringing that, that storm? So who else is bringing that storm, probably? And so the devil, the devil is trying to destroy and stop what Christ is doing. So Christ stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. And they go back. This idea that these storms and natural disasters come out from God. Do we struggle with that today? Mm -hmm. Insurance companies think it. Insurance companies actually say that things, acts of God, aren't covered. Mm -hmm. Acts of God. I almost thought about bringing a lawsuit. These are not acts from God. Okay? 
What about, what about the final plagues? The final plagues that we talk about in Bible prophecy, are those acts of God to punish the wicked? Or are those God withdrawing his protective hand and the devil has more freedom to act? Is, is that not a final attempt to wake mankind up? I mean, like the plagues in... in I think it is. Can you pull back the four winds? Or, uh, Beautiful. Revelation 7, 1 through 3, says, After this I saw the four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the, of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on a tree. And then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power. Listen to this. These four angels have been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the tree until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. How had they been given power to harm the land and the sea? What were they doing? They were holding back the four winds of strife. So how will they harm the, the land and the sea? By no longer restraining, by no longer holding, by no longer holding in check the principalities and powers of darkness. Just like in the book of Job, that hedge of protection was put around holding in check those destructive forces of the enemy. And when that, 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 those angels holding in check were withdrawn, what happened? All types of terrible strife came. Wow. Yes? Even though it sounds worded that, God's plagues are poured out, that he pours out the cups of the plagues. The cups are filled with his wrath, his separation. That's right. The cups are filled with his wrath. So he's, he mentioned his wrath is filled with, uh, it would be his separation. Everybody comfortable with that? Yes. Give me a Bible verse that would support him. Romans 1, starting verse 18, says, The wrath of God is being revealed. Greek is active present tense in Paul's day. Today is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on to tell us in 24, 26, and 28 what God does when they reject the knowledge of God, when they exchange the truth about God for a lie, when they would rather worship images of man, reptiles, and, and birds to, to the truth about God. God does something. Therefore, he let them go. He gave them up. Therefore he gave them up, therefore he gave them up. Three times he says it. God's wrath is giving them up. You find this in the Old Testament when God talks about his wrath uh, in Ezekiel chapter 24 to the uh, children of Israel who were in rebellion, rebellion and idolatry. And he says, the time has come for me to act. Pile up the wood, burn the fire, I, I will stoke the flames. My anger will pour out against you. And what, what happened? He withdrew his hand and the Babylonians came and burned down the city and destroyed. His protective hand was withdrawn. Now, does anybody from the founders of our church see it this way? Well, one of the founders of our church saw it this way, and I'm going to read to you a couple of her comments out of uh, Testimonies, Volume 6, page 408. It says, The restraining spirit of God is even now being withdrawn from the world. Hurricanes, storms, tempests, fire, and flood, disaster by sea and land follow each other in quick succession. Science seeks to explain all these. The signs thickening around us tell us of the near approach of the Son of God, are attributed to any other than the true cause. Men cannot discern the, sent the sentinel angels restraining the four winds that they shall not blow until the servants of God are sealed. But when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, there shall be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. And then, My Life Today, page 308. Four mighty angels are still holding the four winds of the earth. Terrible destruction is forbidden to come in full. The accidents by land and sea, the loss of life steadily increasing by storm, by tempest, by railroad disaster, by conflagration, the terrible floods, the earthquakes, and the winds will be the stirring up of the nations to one deadly combat, while the angels hold the four winds, forbidding the terrible power of Satan to be exercised in its fury until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. 
Well, that's how she saw it. That's how the Bible seems to depict it when we put the pieces together. How many times do we, though, attribute to these things to God? That God's going to strike out and act. Why does God have his four angels let loose the winds of strife? Why does he have them let loose the winds of strife? Because the saints are sealed. Because the saints are sealed, he says. Other thoughts? There's nothing more he can do to win those who haven't made their decision. I think it will allow Satan to show his true colors. To let Satan show his true colors. Has there ever been a time on this earth's history yet where Satan has actually got to govern unrestrained? No. No. Now, have you ever been working in a kitchen and you're going to make a whatever it is you're going to make? And you've got somebody there throwing something in your recipe constantly, throwing little stuff in there that you don't want in your recipe. And if, and if it comes out wrong, um, is that a reflection or you? Can you point to the other person? If they just left me alone, it would have turned out much better. Can Satan allege, if God would just keep his hands out of my business, things would be really cool down here. Because he's never been left alone yet, has he? There's a time coming. God will loose the winds and let Satan govern once the people of God are settled into the truth, sealed, so settled they cannot be moved. And when that happens, without God's intercessions or interventions with Satan holding him in check, Satan and his agencies get to display what kind of government they would lead. And what happens to this earth when that happens? All hell literally breaks loose. Yes, Russell. I think there's another reason for the plagues. Uh, and we see this in Revelation 16, 8 through, 8 through 11. Uh, the, we're talking about the fourth plague here, the power of the sun to scorch the earth. Uh, verse 9, They were seared by the intense heat and cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. And then in uh, verse 10, talking about the plague of darkness, in verse 11, they gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, that they refused to repent of what they had done. It seems to be one last effort of God to, to wake humanity up. That's, that's exactly right. Thank you again for bringing that up. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 that we just read about sealing the servants of God in their forehead. After the servants are sealed, then later, and the servants, the servants are sealed, there's a numbering of them. What's the number? 144,000. But later in the chapter, there's a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people. And so my read of it is, as your read is, that God is waiting for a group of people who are so settled that they will not be thrown off by these plagues and these disasters coming. They have clarity on the great controversy, how it began in heaven, what what has been prosecuted in this spiritual war on earth through the years, Christ's mission, what he accomplished, and ultimately what's about to happen on the earth. They're settled into this whole thing. Their minds have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and they have sealed. And then the winds are loosed, so that as we talked last week, we talked last week about how can God bring all the peoples in the world to, to a knowledge, to a decision-making point. And I think that you're suggesting here that these terrible plagues, as they are unloosed, will bring people to a decision-making point. People today are so busy with their round of life. Get up, go to work, work all day, get home, get the kids, get the kids to bed, get up the next day, go to work. And they're so busy, they don't have time to think about these eternal realities. And they're busy with their television, they're busy with their movies and their iPods and their Game Boys. And that's in this country. In other countries, they have their own routines, but people are just caught in the, in the wheel of life. 
And I think that uh, these plagues breaking loose shake people out of the routine and require them to look for some explanation. And the Revelation teaches us that on both sides. You've pointed out that, that they're not repenting towards God, but that the, the depiction of the beast system in Revelation talks about a system that comes forward suggesting that we need to turn back to God. We need to, we need to become religious. We need to worship the right kind of way. And, and if we do that, then all these things will be stayed. All these bad times will, will go away. So, so there's this, this depiction that, that these types of things turn people's mind in a spiritual direction. So I agree that that's part of it. In fact, why do these things come? This is out of uh, Manuscript Releases, page 14. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond His protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path to safety. Then, if those who have been the special objects of his care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work on sea and on land, bringing calamities and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be. For Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Is that kind of making sense to everyone? Yeah, God holds and restrains, holds and restrains, giving us opportunity to be settled into the truth about Him, to be settled into the truth about His methods, His principles. And one of His principles, outlined in this passage, was the principle of freedom, that God respects your individuality. He has given you the ability to think and reason. Romans chapter 14, 5, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. He gives it to us. Think, reason, weigh the evidences, come to your own conclusion. And if you come to the conclusion that you don't want God in your life, he will not use his power to make you pay. What he does instead is he respects your choice and he withdraws himself from your life. And when that happens, well, bad things occur. Why? Because God is inflicting it upon you as some teach? No. Because God is no longer there to protect you because you don't want his hand in your life anymore. It's a whole different perspective. Isn't that a different perspective? Yeah. So, are miracles and use of might and power, even the control of the weather, a good way to establish who you have your faith in? No. Because these can be counterfeited. How many Christians today have misconceptions about God, believing that the final plagues will be poured out by God himself in order to punish the wicked? How many think that? Then what God do you think they're preparing to meet? Will there be a being, an angel of light coming? that will perform miraculous signs and wonders, even as it says in Revelation, that he calls fire down from heaven yes. in the sight of them. I saw a bumper sticker yesterday, funny we were talking about this today. It said, um, I don't believe in miracles, I rely on them. Yeah. I thought, how sad. Yeah, and, and it's not that we don't believe God is a miracle-working God, we do. But we recognize that miracles can be counterfeited. They're not the best barometer of evidence. I mean, imagine, if you saw a serpent talking language, speaking English, would that be a, a miracle? Yeah, that, did that prove what the serpent says is true? No. You see? Eve saw a miracle. Didn't mean what was said was true. Yes? Jesus performed a number of miracles in front of the Pharisees, and they still didn't believe. And they kept asking, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. That's exactly right. So what then is the, the real power of God? 
His love. Oh, I, it's at Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is the power of God? It's the power of His character of love, the righteous, right, perfect character of God Himself. It's not that, that the ability to move molecules or mountains, that's not what's most wonderful. It's the character of the one who possesses the power that's most wonderful. Isn't it? And thus you read in Zechariah 4, 6, you all know it. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Yes? We were having a talk at work about leadership and power. And interesting, I, I was making the comment that true leadership is being able to give away power. The more you know and have the knowledge, you give it away, and you actually have more power. And it kind of brought me to the analogy of God. He always gives his power. He's always giving. And that's power in itself. He is the infinite source, and he doesn't hold for himself, but he is constantly giving. Remember Christ, who, was, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself, becoming the, the form of a servant, even humbling himself to the cross. I mean, he gave, 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 and he never stopped giving. Even when they were trying to take his life from him, he said, no one can take my life. I will give it freely, or lay it down. I will give it freely. He gave, exactly right, never stops giving. That is the, 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 the secret, if you will, the secret of life in the universe is the secret of God's character of love, the character of giving. All life is based upon it. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. And in the bottom of Tuesday's lesson, there is an excellent paragraph uh, that I'd like somebody to read. It starts, what a contrast. Read that for us. What a contrast between the bread of life and the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees and yet how easy to get them confused. All disciples of Christ need to be aware that belief or following traditions or defending the faith are not always the same as being a disciple of Christ. How easy, once we get established, even comfortable in what we believe, or in how we worship, or in how we practice our faith, to let these things become ends in and of themselves, instead of a means to an end. That end, of course, is to be a faithful disciple of Christ, doing his will and revealing his love and his character to the world. Isn't that good? And did you hear that? Uh, sometimes we get focused in on tradition. And I can't, what was all the words there it said? Defending the faith are not always the same as being disciples. How easy we get established, even comfortable in what we believe, in how we worship, in what we practice. Uh, we get these traditions and we start defending them as if they're the end-all and be-all, rather than revealing the character of Christ. Well, do we as an Adventist people have trouble with that? <laughs> Daily. Can you identify any areas where we maybe struggle? Being vegetarians. Being vegetarians. Why is it a struggle? I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. It just depends on how it's approached, right? If vegetarianism is approached as a means to salvation, do we have we have a problem? If vegetarianism is approached as a means to to healthy living then do we have a problem? 
No. You see, it depends on how it's approached. Yes, yeah, so on another hand. Pardon? The purpose and value of the Sabbath is another thing. The purpose and value of the Sabbath. Is there a way to experience Sabbath which enhances our walk with God, brings us closer to Him, it gives us greater appreciation for Him? Is there a way to appreciate the Sabbath in a way that makes us His enemy? Yes. Those who put Christ on the cross, they wanted Him down by sunset. Why? So they could go home and keep the Sabbath. Okay? They knew the right day of the week, but they missed something in this whole context because they killed the God who was the creator of all so they could keep the day to honor Him. Something's amiss there. So, yes, there's ways to keep the Sabbath that actually make us God's enemies. We might want to think about that. I have a passage here from Councils to Writers and Editors, page 37. I think we should think of a couple of these uh, here. It says, we have many less... This is talking we, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, group of people. We have many lessons to learn and many, many to unlearn. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think that they will never have to give up a cherished view, never have occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined persistency, we cannot have the unity for which Christ prayed. Now, first off, do you notice her openness? You know, she doesn't take the position, our doctrines are the correct ones, and they're, and they're, and they're laid down in stone, and, and everybody should accept, and we shouldn't inquire, we shouldn't investigate. She's of the opinion, only God is infallible, we're human. We should be open to growth, open to change as new truth comes. How do you like that perspective, that attitude? Uh, this is Councils to Writers and Editors, page 37. We'll go back to page 35 in Councils to Writers and Editors. There is no excuse for anyone in taking position that there is no more truth to be revealed, or that all our, our, Seventh-day Adventist, expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. Man, is that a healthy attitude? How many other churches have an attitude like that? How many other so-called prophetic leaders of certain organizations allow close investigation and allow for the fact that with truth is unfolding over time and we may need to change some of our ideas and opinions as time grows? I find that extremely healthy. Yeah, come in reason. That's good. Yeah. Councils of Writers and Editors, page 35. Are there some in our church that struggle with an open attitude to progressive truth? Yeah. yeah. Listen. If you want to thus saith the Lord for anything, everything, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. Why? Because you don't know whether that's God speaking to you or not. It could be the, the devil saying such and such and so on. So, number one. When somebody says something, you ask them. Does somebody have a Bible text for that? Yeah. Uh, remember the disciples, Christ said to them, it is expedient for you that I leave. If I, if, I, if I leave, then the Comforter will come and he will do what? Lead you into all, all truth. Why was that a good thing? Why was it better for, the, for Christ to leave and the Comforter come than for Christ to stay there where they could talk to him personally every day? Think about it. If you had a question on any doctrine, and Jesus was right there, and you go, right, let me go ask Jesus. 
Would you ever act, would you would you ever reason it out for yourself or would you just say, well, Jesus said it, that's all I need to know. Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it, we don't need to think, we don't need to reason. Isaiah 118, God says, come let us reason together, though your sins are a scarlet, they'll be white as snow. John 15, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends because, the reason? Servants don't understand their master's business. God actually wants us, he created us, you understand, he created us in his image. He wants us to fulfill his design in our creation, to come to reveal him. Can we reveal him if we don't think? If we're not intelligent? If we don't understand his methods? If we don't have reasons for why we do what we do? No. So simply looking for proof text isn't the elevation that God wants to bring us to. He wants to, to bring us to the point we actually understand his business and agree with him in what we do. There's a hand over here. Okay. Here's another passage. Get this one. Uh, this is Councils to Writers and Editors, page 38. The rebuke of the Lord, get this, the rebuke of the Lord will be upon those who would be guardians of the doctrine, who would bar the way that greater light should not come to the people. A great work is to be done, and God sees that our leading men, our leading men, have need of greater light that they may unite harmoniously with the messengers whom he shall send to accomplish the work that he designs they should. The Lord has raised up messengers and imbued them with his spirit, and has said, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up the voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions in the house of Jacob, their sins. He was quoting the Bible there. Whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clearer understanding of His Word. They will discern new light and beauty in its sacred truths. This has been true in the history of the church in all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. But as real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of the truth. Men rest satisfied with the light already received from God's Word and discourage any further investigation of Scripture. They become conservative. Do we want to be conservative Christians? They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. The fact that there is no controversy or agitation among God's people, controversy and agitation, key words, there is no controversy or agitation among God's people, should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine. There is reason to fear that they may not be clearly discriminating between truth and error. When no new questions are started by investigation of scriptures, when no difference of opinion arises which will set men to searching the Bible for themselves to make sure that they have the truth, there will be many now, as in ancient times, who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what. Whoa. What do you think of that? But how many times have you heard this preach from the prophet? I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. Is it okay to search the Scripture and raise questions? Is it okay to challenge long-held ideas? As long as we're open to the truth, we're not arrogant, we're not trying to stir up trouble, we're seeking to know God better. So when we've made questions in here like how we've seen the curtain in the sanctuary, a potential new way of understanding what that means, some get real, real defensive. Is there biblical evidence that supports this understanding? And do you all do you all know what I'm talking about? Some some don't. I'll just share it with you. In the sanctuary, the Old Testament sanctuary system, the, the daily priests were dressed in white robes. Now this is all big old symbol. It's a big like little the, theatrical enactment. So everything symbolically stands for something else. 
The daily priests represent what? Dressed in their white robes. What do white robes represent? The believers. Remember, Peter says you are a priesthood of believers. Okay, And the white robes represent the righteousness of Christ, the character of Christ that the believers in Christ now possess or now wear. We have a heart and mind. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So the daily priests are those who are ministering in Christ's behalf the, the benefit or the truth or the gospel of commission. And thus, they carry the blood, the blood, they're the, the daily priests are carrying the blood throughout the, the system as we, the believers, carry the truth throughout the world. You see? The symbolic priest. So, the, the daily priests were able to go into the holy place. And as they went into the holy place, the Shekinah of God, His glory was behind there. And imagine being a believer in your own journey and walk today. Do you have a desire to see God more clearly? Do you want to see him as Moses did face to face? Is it in your heart? Do you think the believers, the, the priests in that day, longed to see God in the Shekinah? And as they looked back towards where God was, there was something obstructing their view. What, what obstructed their view? The veil. the veil. And if they looked to the veil, visually, if you were standing there, what would you see on the veil? Angels. Angels sewn on the veil. Now, in this system, there is only one element in this system that God directed his agencies to damage or destroy. What was that? The veil. Okay, this whole system given by God in great detail, God, at a particular point in time, destroys or rends the veil. The thing that obstructs our way to God, God rips down, God destroys, and God opens the way at the death of Christ. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Christ took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. At Christ's death, he destroyed him who holds about At Christ's death, the veil is rent from top to bottom. And on that veil, we have an angelic host. What is it that obstructs the view of God? Is it not the lies that Satan has told about God that intelligent beings have believed that obstructs our view? Well, is there biblical evidence that would support that? It's in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, the truth about God, okay, our gospel it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, who's the God of this age? Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of, image of God. So, the God of this age has told lies, obstructing our view, so we cannot see the Shekinah glory of God. But Christ, when he died, destroyed those lies. Hebrews 2.14, and the way is open to see God again. Now, some people have trouble with this because of a text in Hebrews chapter 10, the new and living way opened to us through the veil that is his body. People say, well, then it must be his body is the veil. But actually, the descriptor that is his body can refer to either the veil or the new and living way that is now open to us through the veil. So the new and living way through the veil that is his body. I suggest that the, the body, his death, what he did opens the way. And why is that important? Well, who was it that destroyed the veil? God. And if we say the veil is Christ, then who is it that is killing Christ on the cross? God the Father. Are you all comfortable with that? No. Nope. No, there's no biblical evidence. In fact, if you, the Bible is explicit. Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you given me up? Why have you let me go? Ellen White explicitly says in her writings that Satan murdered Christ at the cross. So, 
when we put the pieces together, are we willing to accept that maybe this could mean this? So we look at the, do we do some study, and I did, but each one must be fully persuaded in their own mind. Or do we just shut down and say, no, we can't, we can't allow this possibility? What do you think? What do you think is most reasonable? Would you like me to read it from this? Yeah, go ahead. This is the uh, American Standard, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have great priests over the house of God, and so forth, and so forth. And what, what, what version was that? And so the body can refer to the way, or it can refer to the veil. You have to make a choice. Just like the comma, you know the famous comma? I say unto you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. I say unto you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, you have to make a decision. Where does that comma go? And you base that decision based on a lot of other scriptural references, don't you? Yeah. So, are we willing, the question as a church, as a people, are we willing to grow? Or do we rest confident in all the truth ever to be revealed, preparing us for the end time has been revealed a hundred years ago or more? Or is God still revealing truth today? Ken? I have to say I really appreciate the way that you use the writings of Ellen White because I have never once felt that I was being pounded with the Seventh-day Adventist view of her beliefs or our beliefs just to make us, quote-unquote, a unified body in belief through her writings and that sort of thing. I've always felt that you've used her writings to help people think, to, to get a broader perspective. There are a lot of people over the years who have not done that, and it's done great injustice and great harm to this church. Thank you. Thank you. Wednesday's lesson. Somebody read Mark 9, verse 30 to 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. He will be killed, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Now just think about that. Did, could, could Christ say it any plainer than that? Hey, you need to understand, I'm going to be handed over to some evil men. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the disciples' response was? Uh, tell us about that, Savior. Uh, Lord, uh, Jesus, please, could you tell us a little more about that? Their response was no. They had a response. They were afraid to ask him about it. They had a response of fear. Now, let's analyze that. What do you think they were afraid of? Truth. They were afraid of the truth. Why were they afraid of the truth? This is good, man. This is so good. They were pondering who was going to sit on his left hand and his right hand, and, and who was how his uh, earthly kingdom, the hierarchy was going to be, and when the shackles of Rome were going to be thrown off. So, did they have a dream? Did they have a a, a fantasy? Did they have a, a, a an aspiration? Did they have a, an expectation of what they wanted to see the future and how they wanted to see it unfold? Did they? And was the truth about to shatter that? Did they want that shattered? No. No. So they didn't want to ask him because they didn't want their little bubble broken. Now, do you see a powerful lesson here? Do we have trouble with the same dynamic? (laughs) I see people in my office all the time who got into relationships with someone. 
And that person's, remember Christ said earlier, um, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, a principle that people reveal themselves to you as they conduct their lives, as they live, how they act, what they say, they show what's in their heart. And in the dating relationship, you will have a person reveal themselves to you. But many people have strong feelings in the matter. They have a fantasy. They have a dream. He could be such a wonderful person. She has so much potential. We could be so happy, if only. And they create this fantasy world that doesn't exist in reality. And they ignore the truth. They're afraid of the truth. They don't want the truth to come in because if the truth comes in, guess what happens? The little bubble bursts and the relationship dies. Why does the relationship die? Because the person wasn't qualified to be with you in the first place. But we don't want that truth. So we go on with a lie. We ignore the truth. We allow our own desires to create a, a belief that we, we pin our hopes upon. And we push forward anyway. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you guys the truth. You can never avoid dealing with the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with the truth. You can never avoid it. You can only delay it. Now, this is where the Barney Fife rule comes in. <laughs> nip it in the bud. <laughs> nip it, nip it, nip it. You see? If you take that principle, if it's true, I want to deal with it as soon as possible, then you will avoid much pain and suffering. Think um, from your own relationships, from your own life history, from the people you know and, and, and deal with. How many people have you know and have avoided dealing with the truth only to make the problem worse, worse, worse with time? And this is not just true in relationship issues. I had a patient who was dying of colon cancer. Three to four years earlier, he began to have some rectal bleeding. He told himself, it's, it just must be hemorrhoids. And he ignored it. Didn't go get an evaluation. Didn't go get it biopsied and, and so forth. He just ignored it. Put it off. Put it off until the symptoms became so bad that actually he couldn't put it off anymore. And by that time, three, three to four years later, it had metastasized all over his body and he couldn't be helped. If he would have taken the, the I want truth, he can't avoid dealing with truth. If you got cancer, you got cancer. You can't avoid it. You can only delay the day that you deal with it. Same thing's true with everything in our life. And so we want to develop that hard attitude that says, I want to be a lover of truth. I want to have a mind that is willing to look at truth at the earliest possible moment, even if it shatters some preconceived ideas, even if it shatters some dreams, even if I've been preaching another doctrine for 37 years of my ministry, if new truth comes to bear, I want to be able to give that up. Ken? A man who was almost like a godfather to me once said that if you're going to take a loss, the sooner you take it, the less it'll be. That's right. That's right. Same principle. Do we have trouble in religious beliefs that we've held to for a long time when new truth comes in, giving those up if it's going to shatter our long-held beliefs? Is that, is that something we struggle with? Is it not just Adventists, but the whole world? Yes. We have our preconceived ideas. We've created little constructs. And sometimes when new truth comes in, it can be quite devastating. But you can never delay, and, and by the way, everyone will deal with truth. Some will do it here. Those who take the attitude that I'm going to deal with truth now have regeneration of heart they op because the truth will bring them to conviction. The truth will bring them to the source of truth, which is God. The truth will result in their recon re reconnecting and, and opening their heart to God for regeneration and healing. And so these people are going to be healed. They're going to be saved, those who deal with the truth now. 
But those who delay dealing with the truth and refuse what well, says in Thessalonians, that they are destroyed by the brightness of His coming because, the reason they're destroyed by the brightness of His coming, they did not love the truth and thus be healed. They didn't love the truth. And so everyone will deal with the truth. Some deal with it now and are healed. Some will deal with it at the great day of judgment. But everyone deals with the truth. Yes? about the belief that you cannot be perfect now? Well, it depends on what you mean by perfect, see? Perfect is often, when you use it, almost everyone hears it as, how I perform. That's how, how, everybody hears it, how I perform. But if you had cancer and you went to the doctor, and you said, doctor, will you heal me? But I only want to be 98% healed. I don't want to be perfectly healed. Just 98%. Because I know it's not possibly perfectly healed. When we go to Christ, who is our great physician, wants to heal us, do we believe He can perfectly heal? Now, it's not on our performance. The pressure is on His ability to heal and regenerate. And so, when it says, Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is, imperfect, is, is perfect, what's it talking about? No. That you never drivel, dribble soup on your chin or drop a plate in the kitchen? Oh, you made a mistake. Not perfect. Or is it having that, that abiding trust, being so settled into the truth that you trust God so much that you're willing to lay down your life? 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Christ gave His life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. That's perfect. Job was that perfect man. That doesn't mean he made mistakes. But he trusted God that when all the troubles and trials and tribulations came, even though he had questions, even though he didn't understand it all, even though, what did he do with his questions? He went to God. He said, I don't want to talk to that guy because I've got an issue with him. He didn't distrust God. He trusted God. He knew there was something wrong and he wanted to work it out. That's what it means. And so it depends on when you say the word perfect, what does it mean? Can we come to that point that we really trust God, even though we don't understand things? I think we can. Yeah. Let's see. Last two paragraphs in Wednesday's lesson. It uh, says, What is so sad about this case is that they were fearing the one thing that offered them the greatest hope that they could possibly have, salvation through the atoning death of Jesus on their behalf. They feared what they did not understand. They feared what they did not want to hear. Had they understood what the cross was all about, they would not have feared. Hence, it was their ignorance that kept them fearful. And, and it talks uh, later down here about Jesus, who revealed his love to us by dying on the cross as our substitute. Sure, sin is real and the devil is real. Hell will be real. And we need to be aware of the dangers to our soul. Anyway, would you all agree that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were the most important events in all of universal history. I mean, they are, they are the, the central hub of when much all of universal history now is focused. It, they're the central, most important thing in the plan of salvation. True? Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As such, do you think that the devil might make that a focus of his energies for misunderstanding? Yes. Have we struggled as Christians with constructs and beliefs about the cross and why Christ had to die, that rather than restoring us to unity and trust with God, actually cause increasing fear of God. And as I've brought this up in the past, I've gone ahead and just said some of the things that are taught. And uh, I've had some friends that have come to me and said that, that some non-Adventist friends hear what I say and say, well, I've never heard that in the other churches. Uh, you, you know, I've never been taught that. I've never heard that preached. So I wanted to do my homework. I'm quoting from you from Christianity Today. This is not an Adventist journal. And they are uh, referencing a document called A Call to Evangelical Unity. 
dated June 14, 1999. This was a call for evangelicals to unite uh, as Christians. And, and they, they got together, there's about 110 theologians from all different, other than Adventists, Adventists were not involved, non-Adventist Christians that came together and formed a consensus. Now, there's many good things in this document, but here's the key, uh, an error that I think persists in Christian thought that ultimately undermines all the good things said. I'm going to read to you uh, three paragraphs. It says, Jesus paid our penalty in our place on the cross, satisfying the retributive demands of divine justice by shedding his blood in sacrifice and so making possible justification to all who trust in him. The Bible describes this mighty substitutionary transaction as the achieving of ransom, reconciliation, redemption, propitiation, and conquest of evil powers. We affirm that the atonement of Christ by which in his obedience he offered a perfect sacrifice propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on our behalf according to God's eternal plan is an essential element of the gospel. We deny that any view of the atonement that rejects the substitutionary satisfaction of divine justice accomplished vicariously for believers is compatible with the teaching of the gospel. Now, do you understand the core central... If you believe that God required someone to appease him and propitiate him and turn aside his anger and his wrath, and that person was his own son, that he's up there pleading. If you have that construct in your mind, can you ever really come to trust God? No. No. Jesus is your friend, to be sure. But the Father will always need to have someone to protect you from him. See, this, this, this little poison pill is paganism woven into, into Christianity. The truth is, if you check the scriptures, Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up. How will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? No, he is at the Father's side and is also interceding for us. Notice the context. Christ is interceding in addition to the Father. The Father is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? How about... John chapter 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Or 1 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I want. I mean, the Bible is very, very clear. God has always been on our side. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. One in character, one in method, one in purpose. They are unified. They've always been on our side, always working for our redemption, always working for our salvation. This idea that the Father needed the Son to do something to propitiate Him. And just think about the actual meaning. And just think, think it through for a minute. We are sinners down here on this planet. God's law has been broken. Justice requires that something be done. This is a traditional view. Well, we, can't, we can't pay the Father because, I mean, we're all sinful. I know what we'll do to get the Father to be gracious to us again. When He sends His Son, we'll kill His Son and offer Him the, His Son's blood and then He'll be happy with us. What? Isn't that what it's saying? Does that make sense to anybody? No. no. There was a reason Christ said that. I want to be clear. Mankind could not be saved without the death of Christ. It was essential. It was a requirement. But not because the Father needed to be paid off. It was not some legal debt that Daddy had to uh, put into his accounting books in order for us to be have pardon stamped by our name. It was a requirement for regeneration, restoring, recreating, and putting this creation back in God's original ideal. Christ came and actually achieved what was necessary for the actual healing and regeneration of the species. That's what he achieved. And I, I don't have time to go into all that, but the whole idea here is, this is a poison pill, and I believe it's the last truth to be recovered to f- complete the Reformation. 
The Reformation has been a 500-year progression of recovering truths from the Dark Ages. And the last truth that we recovered is the truth about God Himself, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And, and you don't need one member of the Godhead working on the other member of the Godhead to be kind and gracious. That's a distortion. And, and there was a hand, one comment, and we'll close. It's interesting how that whole view completely takes Satan out of the picture. Basically, I mean, it's all of a sudden it's about God, you know, appeasing his anger and him causing all the, the, the problems. And Ellen White is quite articulate on this whole dynamic where she says that Satan works to intercept every ray of light that comes from the throne of God and to misrepresent God and attribute to God the very character traits of Satan. And what's happened in this doctrine is the very character traits that belong to Satan are now attributed to God, and the God they worship is not the God that Jesus revealed him to be. They worship the misrepresented distortion of God that Satan puts forward, that he is severe, arbitrary, unforgiving. These are, these are the attributes of Satan that Ellen White specifically lists as being attributed to God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not, as Satan has alleged, that you are exactly as Jesus has revealed you to be. And we remember in the book of Revelation that those end-time people that are ready to meet you are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus' testimony is, if we've seen him, we've seen you. We want to be those end-time people who recognize you, Father, are just like Jesus in character. We pray that you will empower us to see you clearly, that that veil of lies will be removed, that we can see the Shekinah glory in the face of Jesus revealing you, and that we can go out of here being lights in this dark world, effectively taking this message to, to the world to win others to your cause. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.